Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Excited to be here with you. My name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your teaching pastor uh, for today. For those of you who are tuning in, thanks for uh, tuning in all the various ways uh, people are here. We're thankful for that. Uh, We're currently in a series in the Psalms uh, where we're looking at how the gospel speaks to our uh, emotions, trying to help build us up as a church body and emotional intelligence. And man, if I'm honest, I said this in the first service, I'll say it again. Like that worship set was so good. And the authority by which David just gave those announcements, I feel like we could take communion in this mug, and we'd be done. You know, if the preaching of the gospel in this way was not absolutely necessary, they have 100% done it for me. So if I fail you, your brothers and sisters have succeeded uh, in my stead. It was so good. Thank you for leading us through that. Uh, currently in the series in the Psalms, just trying to gauge uh, emotions, trying to gauge some emotional intelligence. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to start off this sermon. If it, if it feels a little bit like an awkward junior high dance, just bear with me for a minute. There's a few things I've got to cover, a few things I've got to explain, and then we're going to get into the text, all right? And so if you missed last week, I would encourage you to uh, listen to the sermon from last week. And last week, I uh, kind of unpacked for us over the course of about 15 minutes something hot in our culture right now called Christian deconstruction, if you were here. And so if you could throw the definition up for me uh, for this week, it's the same as last week. But uh, deconstruction means that there is no logical truth in written literature. And this is hot in our culture right now, definitely coming towards uh, mid- the Midwest for certain. And what happens is that Christian leaders across the board, uh, famous pastors most certainly, worship leaders across the board that are kind of out there in the social media world, uh, have started identifying as as a Christian, comma, who's deconstructing. And the world has looked at them, and the world has said, man, you're so strong, and you're so bold. How awesome of you to step out and identify in this way. But all they're doing is walking away from the faith. That should not be applauded. If anything, we should drop to our knees and plea for the souls of our potential brothers and sisters. And so last week, we looked at at that, and I kind of got into this reality that that happens when there's not a safer space for you to come and process through your doubt, and it also happens whenever you're looking at the world, and you're looking at God's word, and you're looking at God's people, and you go, man, these two things right here don't add up. Like, I don't know how to reconcile these two things together, and so instead of kind of staying and fighting, and this could be in sin, it could be a part of someone's story, either way, instead of staying and fighting, what happens is they deconstruct. They look at it and say, this is not logical. It doesn't look like me. This, must not, this doesn't fit what I'm going through. This must not be sound. I can't submit to this. There is no absolute truth uh, in this. And so very similar to postmodernism that would say there is no absolute truth. What's true for you is true for me. What's, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And that sounds really sexy and all put together until my truth says that your truth is a lie. And now all of a sudden we've got a bit of a conundrum here, don't we? And so Christian deconstruction would say there is no absolute truth in written literature, specifically in the Bible. That was last week. I would encourage you to uh, listen to that. In order for me to make sense of Psalm 91, I think I have to introduce another term uh, to you. It's a theological uh, term. And so the theological term I want to introduce to you before we get into it is the already, not yet. And so the definition I put together for you is by faith in Christ, all of the spiritual blessings of Christ are ours already, 
but the full enjoyment of these said blessings is not yet ours, the already not yet tension. There's a lot more that goes into this than what I'm about to give you, but what I'm saying here in, in short or maybe in long is this. Everything that Jesus Christ could have ever done to fulfill every single aspect of every promise and prophecy that's ever been said, read in this book has 100% been achieved. He has lived the perfect life, went and atoned for our sin by dying a sacrificial death on the cross. He's resurrected to new life. He's sent the Holy Spirit. He's birthed the church, called us to live on mission for him, and he will come back and split the skies. It is all done. He's going to call us up to him. We talked about this last week, too. Last week was chock full of stuff, wasn't it? We talked about being, what does it mean to be brought up in full glory before the Lord? Everything has been done. You are sealed in Christ as a Christian with an inheritance awaiting you that far exceeds your imagination. It is finished. And at the same time, we're stuck here, not in glory, in Collinsville, which is the opposite, <laughs> is the opposite of glory, okay? Just take everything that's Collinsville... Think about it the other way. That's the kingdom of God, okay? This is where we are. Does that make sense? It's called the already not yet tension. Martin Luther, uh, would give, we're going to steal from him. He's going to give us our big idea today. Martin Luther would say this, and I yoinked it for our big idea. Live today in light of the day. Live today in light of the day. What he's saying is live right now with this mindset, with this reality that Christ has done everything, but we are not yet fully experiencing all the benefits of being in Christ yet. Is that, are we together on that? Okay, with that in mind, I think we can hit uh, these three points. Eternal refuge, if you're a note taker, eternal refuge, eternal deliverance, and eternal promise. I'm going to say the same thing to you three different ways, and hopefully we're all together by the end with a big, beautiful, awesome picture of Jesus. If you're ready, say ready. ready. Eternal refuge. Psalm 91 is this incredible incredible psalm of deliverance, of refuge, of hope. It is absolutely beautiful. It starts like this. Verse one says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so right out the gate, the psalmist is coming here and he's saying that there is a shadow that you can find comfort in. Now that's different because about a month ago, I got to preach on Psalm 23 and we talked about the, the shadow of the valley of death. And he's saying here though, that there is a different shadow, that there's a shelter that you can find yourself placed in. There's a refuge you can find yourself placed in. There's a trust that you can have. There is a shadow that comes from being close proximity to the Father, to God Almighty. And it is a shadow that is so profound that it overshadows the shadow of the valley of death. He's saying this is the shadow from the Father. There's a, a shadow for he and for she who believes that as we try to get into the presence of Jesus, everything that the Psalm series is about is we're trying to get into the shelter of the Lord, that he will actually cast a shadow upon us that makes everything in life, like whenever all hell is breaking loose outside of that house, look abysmal, look small in comparison to who he is. There's this incredible shadow, he says. God is your refuge. God is your safe space eternally. That does not mean your safe space right now. Your safety is not guaranteed this side of the kingdom. But he's saying in the presence of the Father, you are most certainly safe. And he is most certainly trustworthy. Are we still together? This is the crux of Psalm 91. There is not one negative thing in Psalm 91. It's all positive. 
Every single aspect of Psalm 91 is good news. It's gospel. It's good news. The whole entire psalm, though, has been pinned with an already not yet tension. Everything in Psalm 91 has been pinned, right? We get to look through the cross and read Psalm 91. It's all been pinned with this reality in mind as the psalmist has written this in concert with the Holy Spirit, that the Messiah would come and fulfill everything, and all the promises of God would find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus, eternally, forevermore, even though we don't experience them sometimes right now. This is important because the reality is this. If your mindset is only focused on the temporal, if it's only focused on the right now, and you don't have the eternal in mind, you only have your current situation, your current circumstances, and even Psalm 91. If all I had was a really bad situation in Psalm 91, and I couldn't think, if I didn't have the wherewithal to think about all that Christ has done and fulfilled, then I would have a really bad day. Because if I just come to this psalm and I'm ridden with doubt and I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I'm mad and I'm, I'm reading all this, I would look at God and I would look at the psalmist and I would say, well, where are you now? Where are you? I'm going to share this story with you. Eight years ago, I'm going to share this story with you just as a, a dude who wrestles with doubt, as a parent who wrestles with doubt, okay? Eight years ago, our missional community started loving on a family in our neighborhood is our first MC, and that conversation very quickly went from how can we serve you to a boy coming and living in our home. I would say very quickly, but over the course of about a year, not a formal fostering situation, but a situation that would lead us to formally foster and adopt later on. For six years, we had this boy in our home, and then it got just super, super hard. It got really, really hard, and, and I had to have a set-down conversation with him. I had to keep some of this uh, discreet, you know. I had to have a sit-down conversation with him and look him in the eye and say, hey, I have sacrificed literally everything for you. I've sacrificed time with my kids, time with my spouse, our money, our home, calendar. I've sacrificed everything. Are you willing to sacrifice anything at all to remain in our family? And he looked in my soul and said, no. No, I'm not. And so after much counsel and delineation through pastors, pastors with similar stories to him, pastoral counsel from the outside into me, right, we had to end up removing uh, said young man now, not boy, uh, from our home. A few months later, said boy gets charged with first-degree murder and ends up going to jail. I think some doubt didn't maybe come as a parent in that moment. We're on our way to vacation. That vacation totally sucked. I'm not a... <laughs> I'm not allowed to say sucks from here, I'm told, but it did. It was a blur. I remember something about Kentucky Lake and then just being back in my living room like, what just happened? Like a tornado had just hit our house. He was 16, so we were hopeful. In Illinois, if you're 16, you get charged with first-degree murder, they charge you as an adult. His first sentencing is 35 years, we just found out. Might not get that, may get that, we don't know. Uh, as you saw, if you saw on Facebook, my wife went and saw him. Uh, this week, if, if you know anything about me, I get to use the pastor card, and so now I go see him, and there's a piece of glass between us. And so I have to sit there as a, you know, a, alleged confident adult man talking to this ignorant boy, and I'm sitting underneath like the double destructive thoughts of, I absolutely don't want to be here, and also, I spent much of my Sunday afternoons visiting my mom in jail. So I'm sitting there trying to be confident as a man, but I'm also like experiencing all this emotional turmoil for being a, a confused little boy and not understanding why I can't just hug my mom. And you don't think maybe some 
doubt, some confusion, some frustration that exists in there. And, and so let me keep pressing in, okay? This is my, part of my story. It doesn't get any better. Like with every holiday, with every birthday, with every major life event, we are simultaneously met with celebration and grief. Like the grief just lingers on and on. I'm going to be real honest with you. There are multiple days where I thought, I wish it would just have been him. Because it is so hard sometimes to just sit in that sort of grief. And you better believe if you're a parent in the room or just, you know, have a decent amount of emotional intelligence and empathy about you, there's a lot of doubt, dude. Could I have done more? Could I have tried harder? Man, the one that gets me regularly, like, could we have just fought harder? Maybe we should have just fought more. Fought harder for. Maybe we could have gave a, in light of the Psalm 91. If I'm angry looking at Psalm 91, I'm like, maybe I could have provided a better refuge than God could provide a refuge. Maybe I could have provided a better shelter than what God is providing right here. Maybe I could have given a better gospel than the gospel that it's found in here. And so there's all this doubt that just gets ridden in you as just a, a normal human being. And listen to me, a If I come in that moment with Psalm 91 and all I have is this temporal circumstance that is devastating and ongoing and I have this Psalm 91 that's full of hope, you better believe I don't come right out of it. I go, where are you? Like, why aren't you here with me? It says you're here. It says you're my refuge. Why doesn't it feel like that? Anybody else? And so what I'm getting to, the point of this whole thing is this. If all you have is the temporal and all you have is a bad situation, deconstruction makes sense, right? Like, that's not logical. That's not absolute truth. That doesn't match up or mirror my circumstance and what I'm going through. And so whenever someone's like, well, just deconstruct. Just take Psalm 91 and throw that sucker out the window. You can think, yes and amen. That's a good idea. I would feel better, right? Deconstruction just makes sense. Since the Psalms are written to bring hope to you right now, yes and amen, but they're meant to bring you hope by encouraging you to look at a future hope. And so the psalmist writes Psalm 91 and he sets us in this tension where he says, this is most certainly true. He is your dwelling. He is your refuge. You can trust him. Everything is complete in Christ. And also you're on this side of the kingdom. And you have the effects of sin that you have to battle with and deal with every single day of your life until he decides to split the skies or send you home. And so there's this already not yet tension for me, like just as a man, as I read this kind of this eschatological worldview where I'm looking at this and I'm going, Jesus, you got to come back. You're literally the only hope I have in this moment. I'm looking out. I'm longing for the kingdom and this future hope that's out there is enough. It is sufficient. God, it has to be sufficient to sustain me right now because I literally have nothing else. That is what he's ushering us into. It is an earthly poem that is written with an eternal promise in mind. You with me? It's an earthly poem written with an eternal promise promise, causing us, look at our circumstances, yes, and also long for Christ, long for Jesus to come back. The Bible is meant, don't hear me say something, this is one psalm I'm preaching on, the Bible is meant to be read as a whole entire meta-narrative, this whole entire thing points to Christ, okay? Deconstruction says, no, 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 get out your straw, kind of look through this little bitty peephole, look at Psalm 91, look at your circumstance, and then if it doesn't fit, if you can't reconcile that, then just freaking chuck it, throw it out. The problem with that is that Psalm 91 is called Psalm 91 because it exists within 150 other psalms that speak to all of the celebrations and woes of life. 
Psalm 91 is called a psalm. It's only one book within 66 other books that tell of a whole entire narrative that points to Jesus Christ. Nowhere in the scriptures are we called to take just one scripture out and look at it, and if it doesn't fit me, throw it away. But that is what deconstruction teaches. Does that make sense? Are we together on that? And so if all we have is right now, listen, it's not enough. It's not even the way God designed the thing. And so the psalmist comes out and he says, listen, I need you to know God is your shelter. God is your refuge. He is trustworthy. You might not feel it now, but it's most certainly true. That's the first point. Second point is this. There's an eternal deliverance that's been promised to us. Eternal deliverance. Just listen to what is promised to you, church, for those who are in the faith. Verse 3. Look at what God does. Not what he asks of us. Look at what he just does. Verse 3. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. That's like a curse or sickness. He will cover you with his pinions. That means feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence or curse or sickness that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that waste at noonday. And so the psalmist is coming. He's saying he will, right? God will protect you from all the traps of the enemy. He will keep you safe from the curse of sickness and death. He will cover you. I love this. He will cover you like a mama bird covers her babies. And at the same time, he will protect you with the strong arm of a soldier who bears the shield. Like that's the God that we worship. I don't remember how Jeff said it earlier, but that idea of like he is both full of protection and simultaneously dangerous. That's who he is, right? He's saying, this is guaranteed to you. But this is, listen, listen, this is an internal guarantee. It's an eternal deliverance, right? So if I come at this and it's in the middle of COVID and it was and my grandma dies of cancer and we can't even have a funeral for her, we can't even have a memorial service until a year later, if this is all I had is this bad situation in our family that actually happened in Psalm 91, I would be like, what do you mean sickness won't come? Are you blind? We're literally in a pandemic. 22 months we've been riding this thing out. It's not a right now. It's not a temporal. It is an eternal promise that's been de- delivered through poetry to us. It's not, it's not first a book of promises. It's a book of poetry that points to an eternal promise, an eternal hope in Christ Jesus, eternally guaranteed, eternally signed, sealed, delivered in Christ by nothing that we could do. This is the gospel. Verse seven, a thousand, militaristic language, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it, that's death, death will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense that is like the payment of the wicked. So the psalmist, again, eternal hope, already not yet tension is what he's saying. Death will not come upon you eternally. The wicked will pay a penalty eternally. He's saying deliverance is coming forevermore. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. He's circling back now to 1 and 2. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. He's saying because you have made the Lord your refuge, because you've sought shelter from the outside, because you profess faith in who this God is, these things will not eternally come against you. I need you to hear me say that. Right now, this side of the kingdom church, you're going to experience all this stuff in the reverse negative way. 
Sickness will come. Death will come. There is nothing in the Bible, listen to me, there is nothing in the Bible that promises your safety. Nowhere. It promises, hey, if you're new to heights, welcome to Christianity. It promises persecution. It promises imprisonment. It promises death. It promises sacrifice. Nowhere. Maybe you can pick apart a few things and think there's something good in there, but at the end of the day, at the end of that chapter, it's going to be like death. That's what's coming to you. Just wait. That's what it promises us, right? But, the, but there's an eternal hope that's simultaneously given to us. And he's saying, right, you might experience these things while you're here, temporarily speaking. And in 17,000 years from now, none of it will matter. It just won't matter. In a billion years from now, where we're singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and we can feel the heat off the seraphim angel's wings, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. We're going to be like, dang. Remember that? No, I don't even remember that. So <laughs> there was something I was, ah, I forgot, right? Like Psalm 91 is an eternal promise from an earthly poem. That's what I mean if you're a note taker. Psalm 91 is an eternal promise for an earthly poem. This is important to keep hitting on, and, and here's why. Because in our culture, not only do you have Christian deconstruction, but you have prosperity gospel pastors that are heretical and abysmal and hell-bound the prosperity gospel is an abomination to Christ. If you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, sorry to introduce you to it today. The prosperity gospel says if you're in good health and you're in good wealth and you have good relationships, then God has given you favor. Many of us believe a prosperity gospel whether we care to believe it or, or admit it or not. Right? If I'm in good health and I'm in good wealth and I'm in good relationships and God must have showed me favor. What's interesting about that is that Jesus, who was perfect, died alone on a cross. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, died in prison. All the disciples, all the apostles, martyrs, were they not doing a little bit better than us maybe? <laughs> right? And so these prosperity pastors will come out and they'll say, look, here's the deal. You know, if, you, if your money ain't right, if your health ain't right, if your relationships, you just need to pray more. You know what you really need to do? You just need to give us some more money. Yeah. Come on, I'm feeling like somebody's going to give us $100 a day, somebody right now. You watch them, 3 o'clock in the morning, they're on there, aren't they? I just think the Lord told me to tell you to give me $100. That sounds great, yeah. And, but at the end of the day, what are they doing? They're, they're saying, here, look at your one, get the straws out. Look at your one situation. Look at your one circumstance. Look at your health. Look at your wealth. Look at your relationships. Don't worry about looking at everything else. Just look at these things. And if you look at these things and they're doing well, then God has shown you favor. And, if, and then if God is not showing you favor, well, then you need to show me favor. Give me that money. Give me your attendance. Build me up. What are they doing? They're inviting you to deconstruct. Their own doubt and their own lack of eternal perspective leads us, tries to lead us to deconstruct. Leads us to doubt. Man, get that. <laughs> this is called my name, dude. Get that Joe Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Myers nonsense. Get it out, dude. It's heretical nonsense and it runs the risk of leading millions away from Jesus Christ and what it does and then whether it's deconstruction or it's this what it's saying is this is it it promises you safety and if your works are right and your behaviors are right and your thought is right and your understanding is right then you'll be safe but the bible just doesn't do that it doesn't do that christianity actually says no 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 you need to think bigger you need to think wider you need to have an eternal perspective 
Like, look at everything. Take everything in. Look out there into the future and into the heavens and see the promises of Christ's glorious return and let that truth and that reality in the midst of doubt lead you to live today in light of the day. To quote Luther again in the big idea. That's what it does. Think about it like this. I'm going to use a uh, sports analogy, okay? If you know me, yeah, uh-oh, that's right, that's it. I know, I know, right? I worked on this hard, okay? If you, the reason that they're laughing, I don't want to do inside jokes because I don't want someone to feel alienated. I don't know anything about sports, okay? Um, I didn't know the Super Bowl was this weekend. I didn't even, I don't think I even knew the Rams went to California, okay? That's how, like, disconnected I am from sports. I spent a day with Mike Matheny, and I called him Mike McMillan. I didn't even know, like... This dude, I don't, I've met lots of go sports teams. And so I don't do anything with it, but check this out. Okay. If I were to bear with me now, okay, this is going to be great. Bear with me. Settle down. Okay. And so if I were to give you all straws, okay. And a lot of using a straw illustration a minute ago, if I were to give you straws and say, dude, this is going to be the best thing you ever did. We're about to watch the Super Bowl through this straw. You'd be like, what? Like, no, seriously, like, just put that straw, it'll be straw up to your eye, and we're going to watch the Super Bowl, and it's going to be great. You'd be like, heck no, dude. I didn't go basically rent this TV from Best Buy so I can return it on Monday. This 70-inch 4K HD Ultra TV, right? Like, some of you dudes are like, I want to see the grass in high definition. You're like up there with scissors, like you're helping maintain the field, and you want to see the sweat roll down these dudes, back, whatever you're into. And so, like, I get it. I get it. It's what you're into, right? But what are you saying? You'd be like, no, that's ridiculous, like, no, I want to see the whole thing. I want to see it from every single angle. Like, that's what deconstruction does this. And, and even the prosperity gospel says, no, 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 look at this whole thing through a straw. And if you can just look at your straw and look at right here in this moment, in this circumstance, in this thing, in this one scripture, and if those things don't line up, even though there's a whole entire book here, just toss that sucker out. But the gospel, Christianity literally says, no, 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 think wider, think bigger. Get the full picture. Look at it from every angle. Look at who God is, past, present, future. It promises he's the exact same. And so in this already not yet tension, it gets the reality that there are moments we are just beat down in doubt. But then there's also this beautiful reality where we get this widescreen HD ultra view of Jesus's glory coming to redeem us. And he says, live today in light of that day. That's your shelter. That's your refuge. That you can trust. Don't trust the one guy that's telling you to take this one thing and, and chuck it, man. The gospel brings deliverance. This is what Jesus does. This is what the gospel does for us. Man, I said this earlier too. I wish we had more time. Not only does deconstruction and prosperity, but it, just bear with me for just a moment. Also, if you think about Buddhism, Hinduism, secular relativism, uh, if you like, if you're into yoga, whenever yoga becomes a spirituality, it's called yogi. They do this thing called transcendental meditation. And all of that, the common theme there, what they say is, no, just become one with yourself. Just shut everything out. Cancel out all the other thoughts. Get rid of everything else. What are they saying? Go get a straw. Just focus on this one thing. Focus on self. Be one with the light. Practice your breathing. Christianity, and even in the Psalms, says, no, 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 no. Think about everything. Take it all in. Bring it all in, dissect it all up, and it'll win. Just watch it win. My, it will defend itself. Last thing, eternal promise. Uh, let me read this to you, uh, unpack some stuff from the New Testament, give you the gospel, and then we'll take communion. Eternal promise says this, uh, point, third point, verse 11. 
For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the otter. That's a snake, a really, really scary looking snake. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Pin that for just a moment. Before Jesus goes to the cross um, in perfection to die in our place as our substitute, for our sins, before he's risen to new life in the resurrection and sends us the Holy Spirit, he has to walk through something called the temptation. Uh, the temptation of Christ, where Satan goes out into the, or Jesus goes out in the wilderness with Satan for 40 days to be tempted. In Jesus' temptation, Satan tried to promise him everything earthly, every earthly security that his dad had already promised him eternally. Satan did not come at him with the already not yet tension. He didn't come at him saying, live today in light of the day. Quite the opposite, Satan comes to Jesus and says, get out your straw. Take a look at your situation. Take a look at what's happening right here. Do you want safety? Do you want to, like, he's basically looking at him and saying this, everything that your father offered you, I can give you right now. What is he doing in that moment? He's trying to invite him to deconstruct. You can even say he's preaching to him a prosperity gospel. Do you want wealth? I'll give it to you. Do you want health? You don't want to go to the cross? You don't have to go to the cross to atone for sins. They'll be fine. Do you want good relationships? Everyone's going to leave you. Your brothers, your sisters, your, everyone's going to leave you and abandon you. Do you want good relationships? You can have a relationship with me, Satan would say. That's a prosperity gospel, trying to get Jesus to deconstruct. Do you see that? And so he comes and he, he's saying this, let me be your refuge. Let me be your shelter. Put your trust in me. And then what Satan does is so incredible. He's so sharp. He uses Psalm 91 to try to trick Satan or trick Jesus into following after him. Psalm 91 is one of the three scriptures that we get to see anyway. Satan tempted Jesus, but check this out. Luke 4, 9 through 13. I think this is fascinating. Verse 9. And he, that's Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, listen, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, Psalm 91, the text that we're in. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, praise the Lord, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He's coming back. Satan is, Jesus is not safe. Satan's most certainly not safe, amen? Jesus is not safe in this moment. Satan used this very text, Psalm 91, to try to get Jesus to deconstruct, try to get Jesus to doubt. What is he saying? He's saying, look at your circumstance, right? Do you want everything that God offers you? Do you want everything that your father had promised you? Your dad said back in Genesis 3 that you would tread on top of the serpent. You're the firstborn son of all creation. I can give you that. I can make good on your dad's promise. I can give you everything you want. Seek refuge in me. Seek shelter in me. Trust me. Does he not tell us the same things? Not much has changed, has it? Satan offers everything that God had already promised Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and he says, not yet. You're not the dad that's going to give it to me. He would say elsewhere in the book of John, my hour has not yet come. Praise the Lord. So Jesus, right, he's there, he's sitting before him. Think about, I mean, think about this. The word of God has put on flesh in Christ. Satan uses the word of God to try to tempt Jesus, the word that has put on flesh. And what does Jesus do? seeks refuge in his father. 
He goes to his word. He gets into the presence of his father, looking for, craving the shadow of his father to come over there and give him the strength necessary, the refuge, the safety necessary to walk away from that situation. But isn't it interesting that Satan, whenever he tempts Jesus, he uses the word of God. Isn't it interesting that that's the way that these prosperity pastors and deconstructing Christians try to get us as well? Just use the word of God. There's no logical absolute truth in that. Satan's schemes are no different, are they? What's beautiful about the gospel is this. Jesus fully understood theology because he wrote it. And so he is able to endure earthly suffering because he has an eternal mindset. Like Jesus can look at Satan and say, no, 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 you're not right. Because I, every promise in here says that I have to experience suffering and I have to experience persecution and I have to experience imprisonment and I have to do it for them because they're insufficient to do it for themselves. Right? Nowhere in the Bible did it ever promise Jesus his safety, just like it doesn't promise it to us either. What's beautiful about the gospel is Jesus has this earthly temporal reality in his mind while simultaneously he has his own eyes and sight fixed on the resurrection. Like there's a day coming, he knows, where he's got to endure the cross, yes and amen, but then there's also a day, three days later, happy Easter, where Jesus is going to hop about that mug and bless us with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say, look, I told you, I'm going to take care of everything for you. Here's what's also incredible. Jesus never invites us to do anything that he himself was not first willing to do. Jesus willingly endured persecution, willingly endured suffering, willingly endured imprisonment. Why? For our salvation, for us. Think about this. Whenever Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't just go to the cross and, and die. That's absolutely true, but it's so juvenile and simple. Jesus, in going to the cross, loses the shelter of his father, loses the refuge of his father. He goes to the most unsafe place in human history and the shadow of the father for the first time in all of eternity is removed from him. The father has to turn his face away. And so the very thing that we spend our lives wallowing in idolatry to try to escape, Jesus willingly endured for us. He says, there's no other way. Looks Satan in the face. Who to use David slash my words. He punches Satan right in the mouth in that mug, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to the cross. Was he nervous about it? Absolutely. Was he anxious? Yes and amen. He sweat drops of blood out of his face. But he still endures and goes to the cross for us. That is the hope and the beauty of the gospel. And it is that reality, church, that we've got to set in and recall regularly in the midst of doubt. I didn't share this in the first service, but I'm going I'm to share it in this one. Uh, this week in our missional community, uh, we're sitting in the living room on the couch. And uh, on the couch alone, just a little L-shaped couch, uh, there were stories of divorce, stories of infertility, rejection, death, and addiction. Just on our couch that's true of that room, it's most certainly indicative of this room, okay? To say that there's not doubt in here is shallow. There is doubt upon doubt upon doubt. And for every doubt that exists in this room, I need you to know that there's a Jesus that speaks truth and hope and life into it. He's eternally good. Stand with me for communion. Let me, I'm going to read over you the last three verses of this text. And I just want to, I want to read it to you just to further place our hearts. Let it just further unite us in Christ. So before you touch any communion things or anything like that, let me read this to you. Verse 14 through 16 says this, Miss Debbie. It says, because he, that's the believer, the Christian, 
the God fear in this text, because he holds fast to me, that's God, in love. Listen, I will deliver him. That's coming, church. It's 100% coming. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With lifelong, I will satisfy him. And I will show him, show him my salvation. This is a promise that is true for right now, but there's no guarantee that you're going to feel it right now in the moment. It's an eternal promise that's most certainly been given to those of us who are in the faith. There is nothing safe about Christianity. Matter of fact, it's the complete opposite. It's dangerous because they serve a dangerous God that professes this sort of promise and he sticks to it. As we enter into communion and offering, we do this every week. You can get communion cups if you need to. Feel free to make your way up to the front to grab a communion cup out of the basket if you didn't get one. I want to read over you 1 Corinthians 11 as I do every week. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We say it together every week. So even in communion, communion is not a religious event, it's a redemptive event. It's an opportunity to, it's an opportunity to literally look at the cup, which represents Christ's blood that was spilled for us, in our places, our substitute, it's an opportunity to look at this little wafer that represents Christ's body that was broken in our place as our substitute. And at the same time, it, it invokes in us this longing to experience the already not yet. Because it says you, you celebrate this until he comes, which means he's most certainly coming back. And so whenever you step into communion, don't ever do it with a religious heart, but rather do it with an eager anticipation for Christ to come. And this little meal that you hold in your hands is a foreshadowing of what's called the messianic banquet where the Lord God is going to split the skies. He's going to come back. Listen to me. And the, the shadow of the Father, as we set at a meal with him, as we set a table with him for eternity, is going to cast a shadow over us that no other shadow will ever trump. It is in him we will find our refuge forevermore. It's in him that we find our shelter forevermore. That's what communion is about. Not a religious event. It's a redemptive event. For those of you in Christ, feel free to take and eat when you're ready.